I was writing something the other day, and in, in that, I wrote. Uh, I could find a, I could find some sort of a, a linkage that if you see across South Asia and the Indo-Pacific, most of the nations. I'm not saying all. I'm saying most of the nations that are experiencing major domestic political turmoil are those who have the greatest exposure and pressure of Chinese debt. Welcome back. You're listening to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Here at Japan Forward, we bring to our audience issues that are of real importance in and about Japan from the perspective and context of people inside of Japan, as expressed or captured by them who truly understand the nuances of culture, issues, and current events. In today's session, we're joined by Dr. Monica Chansoria, who is a senior fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs in Tokyo. She specializes in contemporary Asian security and weapons proliferation issues, nuclear strategy, and great power politics in the Indo-Pacific. Let's listen in. Thank you to our listeners and followers for joining us again for our weekly Twitter space. Every week, we're seeing more people join us for this live conversation, and we appreciate it very much. Before we get started, let us introduce ourselves. For any anybody unfamiliar with us, we started Japan Forward in 2017 with the goal to reach global audiences, sharing stories, opinions, and editorial content、um, from Japan. Our mission, shared by our supporters and followers, is to raise awareness of the Japanese spirit, culture, and traditions. So now let's introduce some of our editorial staff who are also in this Twitter space.、Um, Susan.、Um, yes, my name is Susan Komori, and I have the pleasure of working with Dr. Chansoria as the senior editor,、uh, and、uh, absolutely treasure her articles when they come in. I look forward to it all the time, and they tend to come in groups. She's a prolific writer and、uh, deeply、uh, informed about everything. So、uh, this will be lots of fun. Thanks, Susan. And I'm Galileo. I work on the marketing and some of the social media on Japan Forward. I'm interested in a lot of things, and that's why I like working in Japan Forward with Susan and the team. Oh, and also we have Naito-san. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Monica-san.、Uh, well, thank you for you know your contribution. I really like、uh, your contribution, and、uh, I'm I'm ready to learn. Today,、uh, <laughs> you know about Sri Lanka, India, and so many things happening. So, thank you. And so, yeah, just quickly, so Naito-san is the、oh. editor of chief of Japan Forward. He's one of the biggest founding, the founders of Japan Forward, and how he's he started、um, this project with some of his contacts and a lot of people in Sankei. In about 2016, and this year it's going to be our five-year anniversary. Yay! Yay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so lastly,、um, I'd like to introduce our guest, who is Dr. Monica Chansoria, who is a senior fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs in Tokyo. She's a longtime friend and contributor with us at Japan Forward. Her first piece was published in 2017, almost five years ago. So just before. Just yeah, as soon as we started, and since then has immensely contributed over 100 articles, like 107 to be precise. Today we'll be talking about Dr. Chansoria's latest article: Sri Lanka's economic crisis threatens Indian Ocean regional security. Welcome to our Twitter space, Dr. Chansoria. 
Oh, thank you so much, Galilia San, uh, for this very kind introduction. Um, before I begin, I'd like to uh, place on record my heartfelt uh, gratitude for the unending cooperation and support given by the editor-in-chief Naito San, by senior editor Komori San, both of whom are like the bedrock of, of this, this publication and this entire enterprise. Um, I have seen Japan Forward grow from when it started in 2017 and it has only gone from strength to strength. And I I'll be so delighted to see it, you know, even get greater recognition and, and um, significance in the sphere of making Japan's presence felt in every aspect of, of world affairs. Um, so I think uh, it has been a great journey um, for Japan Forward and for contributors like me who have had this association for five years and, and hope to continue this in the future as well. So, um uh, back to you, Galileo san if you, if you want to begin with the conversation. Yes, so thank you for the kind comments. I think, yeah, we're going to have some, we're, we're hoping to plan something nice for our fifth year anniversary. We'll mm -hmm. work out the details and we'll definitely loop you into it once mm -hmm. those are confirmed. And yeah, mm -hmm. of course, we'll be excited to have longtime contributors like yourself be involved in some way, somehow. Yeah. All right. So... To the topic today, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask um, Dr. Chan Soria, you wrote the piece about, again, Sri Lanka's economic crisis, threatens mm -hmm. Indian Ocean regional security, and that's what we mm -hmm. were going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. So maybe could you enlighten our listeners with a brief summary of what's happening with Sri Lanka's economy? Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'll, I'll try to sum up uh, what has been uh, the immediate uh, fallout that we see in Sri Lanka and uh, the economic crisis that has hit this island country. And then uh, also explain very, very briefly, given the paucity of time, uh, what are the immediate and uh, long-term causes that has uh, sort of resulted in this, this uh, crisis and catastrophe, if we can say, economically, as well as which has uh, social, political and political fallouts in the island nation. So I think um, everybody uh, in the region and beyond may not be exactly aware, but they know of Sri Lanka's struggle with decades of civil war, and uh, which finally ended. Uh, it was a violent civil war. It ended in 2009. And a decade later, when sort of Sri Lanka was just trying to rebuild itself from this entire crisis. I hope I'm audible. Yes, yes, we can hear you. Okay, thank you. So when the so a decade following the civil war in 2009 we had this this massive spate of terror bombings. Um there was uh, the, Sri Lanka was already reeling in sort of a debt, you know, and they were trying to rebuild uh, the country and the island nation. Uh, but today we see this that the economic nightmare is almost becoming is worsening by the day, you know, with very basic supplies like medicines, essential food supplies, uh, food for food and milk for children. There is lack of fuel. There are power cuts which are as as long as continuous 10, 12 hours power cuts. So I think in a long in a, in a, in a sort of long term perspective if we see it is it has been a gross economic mismanagement which has been the primary problem for the present imbroglio that this you know very very strategically placed island country in the indian ocean region and in south asia 
finds itself in. And Sri Lanka's placement in this region, be it the Indian Ocean, if you see it from an Indian Ocean's perspective, a South Asia perspective, or even the Indo-Pacific, Sri Lanka is, is the heart of all these regional alignments and these regional geographical uh, boundaries. So, I think there are a couple of reasons for this long-term economic management, mismanagement, I think, and I'd like to just spell them out very, very briefly. Um, among other things, beginning firstly, the, the fallout of the pandemic. You know, countries like Sri Lanka and smaller island countries are very, very heavily tourism dependent island economies. So the pandemic has hit them really hard. And the economic crisis was already sort of, you know, precipitating somewhere. And you see, you know, that now we have reached a situation where the country has been plunged into bankruptcy. But that said, the roots of this problem that the Sri Lanka finds itself lie in, in, its, in its economic mismanagement, as I said. It lies in broken politics. Hmm. Um, more importantly, you know, things like the tax to GDP ratio. Now, this particular ratio has dropped by almost one third in the past three years as the rates kept getting slashed, you know. Mm. And what, what happened as a consequence was that the credit rating of Colombo suffered a major blow and the budget deficits started soaring. So the budget deficit, when it started soaring, it has reached to a point of being 14% of its GDP. And again, this also had a cascading effect on the rollover of foreign loans. Mm. And it, I, I, I would argue that, you know, um, the foreign loans were used unwisely to fill the fiscal gaps. Mm. That is one major wrong step or policy decision that they took. Because rolling over of foreign, uh, foreign loans, uh, it, has underwent, it has undergone a stage transition from being difficult to fin finally becoming sort of impossible. And this ultimately, the foreign loan factor also became the reason for the massive foreign exchange crisis. And ultimately, what we saw was a concurrent collapse of the Sri Lankan currency. So today, we have reached a situation where a national debt is looming large. Sri Lanka has to repay nearly, say, four billion U.S. dollars worth of debt including repaying $1 billion uh, on international sovereign bonds that are going to be maturing in July. So that's another major milestone which is coming for them. And uh, so that's going to be a crisis that they'll have to manage. And however, the and on top of all this, you see you know, foreign currency reserves dipping to $2.31 billion at the end of February. So I think... Um, uh, an important factor which we need to underscore is that the largest slice of borrowing, as we say, in the case of Sri Lanka is from foreign creditors. And this mm. includes the international sovereign bonds, which, which accounts for 36.4% of its total uh, external foreign debt. Mm. Um, so these repeated cycles of borrowing since 2007 so, which is almost like 15 years now. So, Colombo, because of these 15 repeated years of, you know, borrowing and reborrowing, the, 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 the debt has piled up to 11.8 billion US dollars. So, a, a, you know, an island, a small island country, traditionally dependent on large scale imports for everything, essential needs. So, the lack of foreign currency is making it incapable of paying up for vital supplies. 
And without any concrete and viable reforms, even the best projects and funding end up becoming financial white elephants, as they say. Mm-hmm. So this is primarily why, you know, privately funded infrastructure projects are often a bad, bad idea. And mm-hmm. big scale foreign funded projects, which have dubious terms and conditions mm-hmm. and costly loans become far worse. So in Sri Lanka's case, the unprecedented economic collapse is attributed to an unsustainable debt. It is attributed to white elephant projects that Sri Lanka has undertaken with massive loans from countries like China and Japan. Now, the case of un- case of China and Japan cannot be equated together. There is a there is a fundamental difference here. Mm. You know, uh, Japanese investments are different from Chinese because unlike the Japanese investment, China does not appear to be assisting in selecting investments for the country's long-term public interest, appropriateness, effectiveness, sustainability, and most importantly, eco-conservation. Now, Mm -hmm. these all are facets which Japanese investments always takes into account. Mm -hmm. So there is this fundamental difference that needs to be sort of highlighted here between Chinese investments, which are very, very, I would say, uh, predatory in nature, both in economic terms and strategic terms. Mm-hmm. And as we sort of continue in this conversation, I'll explain more on that. So. Yes, thank you yeah, for outlining a lot of the important issues that are, I guess, underlying uh, Sri Lanka's current ec- situation with their economy. Um, and yeah, I'd like to hear more. And could you elaborate on what Japan's role is? With, mm-hmm. with this this crisis as 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 we as you may mm-hmm. so as i was mentioning that um while the international sovereign bonds remain colombo's largest foreign source of uh, foreign creditors uh, it uh, it it is followed by the asian development bank as the second largest source uh in terms of being colombo's second largest lender uh Following that come individual nations. And here, the two most important and the biggest players in this in this uh, thing, uh, in this cycle are Japan and China, which make up to nearly 10.9% and 10.8% of uh, being the lenders. Um, and in terms of gross figures, it will be something like $3.5 billion each as they uh, loan out to uh, Sri Lanka. Particularly speaking about Japan, um, Tokyo has partnered, you know, uh, Sri Lanka's socioeconomic development to promote uh, quality infrastructure and growth ever since Tokyo established diplomatic relations with Ceylon, as Sri Lanka Mm. was called back then, you know, I'm talking Mm. of the decade of the 1950s. Mm. So before China became one of its largest investors in 2008, it was Japan that was Sri Lanka's largest donor country, and they were providing grants and concessionary loans. In fact, um, I, I just uh, am reminded that following the end of the civil war in 2009, mm. uh, Japan uh, had provided almost 1,100 billion Japanese yen, which amounts to roughly 8.8 billion US dollars in assistance to Sri Lanka under various schemes, which are specifically directed for conflict affected areas and people. Mm. So, as, as Sri Lanka's uh, third largest foreign creditor, um, Japan needs to take cognizance of the current situation and 
take proactive measures uh, to ensure that um, the current economic crisis in Colombo does not become a predatory opportunity for revisionist countries that are already playing a big game in the region and in inside Sri Lanka as well. Mm-mm. So Japan's presence and roles in a role in the Indian Ocean needs to be highlighted mm. ever more in the current situation. You know, uh, Tokyo's presence, engagement, qualitatively, as I said, is very different from China's because Tokyo's investment policies uh, and in uh, equations with uh, smaller island countries has always been based on regional norms. And there has been a very, very uh, in, um, sort of intended focus to practice transparency prem- premised on rules-based order, economic sustainability, mutually beneficial uh, blue economy strategy across the Indian Ocean region uh, that is both marine health friendly over the long term, as well as it's mutually beneficial both to the donor country and the recipient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think Susan has a question to follow this up with. Mm-hmm. Susan, when you're ready, I think you're on mute. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I have lots of questions, of course. Um, Japan mm-hmm. and China have different kind of terms on their loans. And uh, is that playing a role in the current crisis? I know that uh, Sri Lanka uh, declared a, a sort of partial uh, uh, not exactly a bankruptcy, but that they were going to default on uh, their loans, giving notice about this. Uh, and I, I think also the IMF is planning to meet with them. Uh, but uh, to what extent are the different kind of terms of, say, the, uh, the IDB or Japan's loans as opposed to China's loans? And are they, is that playing a role in this? All right. That, that's a brilliant question. So could I could I take a, a little while to sort of explain the multiple facets of uh, China's sort of uh, money lending, uh, you know, yeah. terms and conditions? So, OK. So I think um, I'll, I'll firstly begin by sort of, you know, uh, this this entire debt trap diplomacy and this debt trap uh, framework sort of uh, which china has devised over the period of the past few years and the the model that they are employing in most of the countries is pretty much the same so you know we we see here today that china seemingly is piercing through this crisis in sri lanka and they are, they generally come out and play the role of a very sharp money lender so most of the Chinese projects and loans often are directed towards uh, nations uh, which are either very resource rich or are strategically placed. Sri Lanka falls in both categories. Um, 70% of these countries uh, do not have good credit ratings or any rating at all for that matter. Uh, in the specific case of Sri Lanka, it's a very, very small strategically located island. Um, so it makes another such case in point. Uh, nations such as Sri Lanka and other smaller nations, be it in the Pacific Islands, the Caribbean, uh, across the Indian Ocean region, or even the Indo-Pacific extended region, uh, they're always looking for alternative sources of external finance for their development. And uh, China protects and it, uh, China sort of has this policy of protecting its interests by holding project assets as collateral. And this is a very, very important facet. So what they do is that because they've held project assets as collateral, they end up taking over a few. 
And um, in in many cases, we we have seen and we'll continue to see that Chinese lending is often followed by asset grab. Uh, more critically, the Chinese debt never comes cheap. The interest rates on the Chinese loans, um, shockingly, are almost about three times to what other countries charge on bilateral aid amounts. And this is a very, very important facet that needs to be underscored. I'll repeat here. The mm. Chinese loans are almost three times to what other countries charge on bilateral aid amounts. So this recurring phenomena often gets referred to as debt trap diplomacy. Mm. And, and more critically, I feel the opacity surrounding Chinese debt is given... Uh, you know, given its consistent history of hiding loans as trade credit or routing them through special purpose vehicles, all these are very, very age-old strategical tactics that sort of they, they put into motion. So for, for putting the above, this, this strategy into operation, co-opting the political leadership of the target country is a very important prerequisite for China. So in the case of Sri Lanka, it became the Rajapaksa and the entire Rajapaksa clan. And this is another important facet. So you need a political leadership which sort of is, you know, uh, working in, in sort of subservient manner to uh, the, the government uh, in communist China. And then you have, you know, this entire debt trap strategy. We, all, we already see that the strategy has been employed in the Indian Ocean region, Africa. But if Beijing is going to sense an existential vacuum, as I see it would, it will swoop in to further cripple Sri Lanka economically. It will not lose any time to do that. And this will render the island nation politically as well as militarily subordinate to Beijing, and which is going to have a direct security implication for uh, countries like India, which is in the immediate neighborhood, countries like Japan, which is playing a major role in the Indian Ocean region, and the, the larger equation of uh, regional uh, alignments such as the Quad, uh, and other uh, liberal democracies that are functioning to ensure that the security balance in the Indo-Pacific and in the immediate Indian Ocean region does not get disturbed. So it causes a great sort of concern for literal nations, including uh, the countries that I mentioned. Because, you know, if, for Japan particularly, uh, Japan's growing role and presence in the Indian Ocean is very, very noteworthy because 40% of Japanese self-defense forces missions have occurred in the Indian Ocean region. Mm -hmm. Entire 40%. And almost half of Japan's official development assistance goes and is directed at Indian Ocean rim countries. So, you know, Japan is playing a very, very important role here. So mm -hmm. um, other than that, uh, we also have... Uh, uh, other projects which Japan has invested very heavily in. But anyways, because of paucity of time, I won't speak much on that. But we have, you know, Japanese investments in Sri Lanka, mm. in Mozambique, Kenya, Madagascar, uh, Bangladesh, Myanmar, uh, India. So I think uh, Japan is a very critical uh, player in this region. And China is not going to sort of let go of even the smallest window where it can swoop in with its... Uh, 
with its uh, economic in the, in the garb of economic help, what kind of strategic leverage it will try to sort of snatch out of Sri Lanka because mm. uh, it's a desperate time for the country and um, so desperate times, desperate measures, <laughs> and so that that is something that uh, the other players in the region have to be very careful about and they have to ensure that Sri Lanka does not sort of slip into that. Uh, Dr. Chancellor, yeah. you mentioned a little bit that um, Japan should have a more active role. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, what, what, um, are there any threats or hindrances for Japan to be more active in Sri Lanka's debt crisis? Um, firstly, I think, <clears throat> as I explained, you know, uh, the Sri Lankan debt crisis is a has to be seen in two partic- through two particular prisms. Prisons. One would be exclusively the case of Sri Lanka as an individual island nation, which is uh, plunging into bankruptcy, which has a massive economic crisis staring in its face, which is resulting in a lot of uh, social, social political, political upheaval in the country. And the second prism through which we need to see this crisis is that there is a there is a larger security ramification for the Indian Ocean region because of this crisis and because of the role that China plays in the entire, you know, um, region when it comes to uh, the Chinese involvement. In fact, um, I was just, uh, I was writing something the other day and in in that I wrote, uh, I could find, I could find some sort of a a linkage that if you see across South Asia and the Indo-Pacific, most of the nations, I'm not saying all, I'm saying most of the nations that are experiencing major domestic political turmoil are those who have the greatest exposure and pressure of Chinese debt. Mm. Now, so there is a linkage between the two. For example, we see, let's let's talk, since we are talking about Sri Lanka and South Asia, I'll, mm. I'll give you an example at the top of my hand. Uh, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. They both signed up for massive Chinese debt-funded infrastructure projects. They have slipped into major economic crises. They are caught in political turmoil. In the case near home again, in Myanmar, China has moved back after the military coup. They have again become a major player in the country. They are rigorously pushing for projects such as economic corridors and infrastructure again. Uh, in the case of Maldives, yet another South Asian country, Indian Ocean, important rim country, the Chinese funded projects and loans have fluctuated with uh, changes in the political guard. So, you know, here a case like Bangladesh stands apart because they have been very, very cautious on these Chinese funded projects. So Bangladesh's exposure, say, to Chinese debt funded projects is almost less uh, than one fourth. It's the one fourth the case of Pakistan. So I think it is important for nations to understand that the Chinese, when they come knocking at your door with loans and grants, there are n number of dubious terms and conditions. So I think more and more, uh, as as countries are the case of Sri Lanka or the case of Pakistan, they are going to become, I guess, reference studies for other nations to be extremely guarded. Uh, you know, getting involved with China and its uh, debt trap strategy. Mm-hmm. Well, we would certainly mm-hmm. hope that they become more um, cautious. I was uh, surprised to read in uh, the Washington Post this morning that Washington is suddenly waking up to the fact that China is in the uh, uh, is seeking the Pacific Islands and starting to use predatory um, 
uh, terms of their loans to gain inroads on security arrangements and other things which uh, threatens your security in the entire Pacific. Uh, and I thought of your articles earlier, uh, both this year and in, in the, I think last year or the year before on the Pacific Islands and Caribbean. But leaving aside the Washington Post late mm -hmm. realization of what you've already written about, um, mm. what areas are we likely to see the same kind of problems arise uh, as we're now seeing in Sri Lanka uh, it, with Chinese debt or with these countries becoming susceptible because they're under such a huge debt burden and uh, China's one of the lenders. Yeah, brilliant. I think, um, Susan, when uh, we were, when I had written these pieces in uh, way back during sort of the peak of the pandemic and also last year, I guess uh, uh, I recall having conversations with you when we were discussing as to how it is becoming almost a pattern of, you know, uh, applying the same strategy to smaller, uh, weaker nations, island nations, which are heavily dependent on everything as an import. And uh, we were discussing about how there was a major initiative as soon as the Biden administration had taken over uh, called the Salpi Initiative. So uh, it, I think it was March of 2021 when they sort of unveiled this economic cooperation framework designed to uh, strengthen Washington's collaboration with all these smaller island nations in the Pacific, Caribbean, North Atlantic regions particularly, and that is the reason they sort of came up with this uh, short form SALPI. And uh, I think um, it, it was a very, very important message by the Biden administration that they took cognizance of what was going on in regions such as the Caribbean, the North Atlantic, the Indo-Pacific, the Pacific Islands, the Indian Ocean region. Uh, every smaller island nation in all these regions is almost having the same problem. Uh, the Chinese are uh, sort of majorly engaged with the nation and uh, they are forcing at one point or the other for that nation to compromise on its strategic autonomy. You know, because most of these smaller island countries share a number of characteristics. You know, they have a very narrow economic base, economic dependence for markets, investments. Uh, most significantly, there is a dependence on larger countries for sea and air transport. So this in turn invites, you know, greater influence of, of larger players. And most, more importantly, players such as China, which have a very, very revisionist approach to, to uh, international politics. And uh, because of, as a consequence of these, you know, e external influences, their, their interdependent economic, social, demographic, political, um, ecological subsystems end up shaping the behavior as well as their sustainability. So all these regions are definitely following the same pattern. And uh, as, as important liberal democracies, as important players in the region, uh, countries like Japan, India, Australia, all have to ensure that uh, they end up not sort of, if not anything, to push these countries further it's sort of uh, like away. the weakest link. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. Um, well, what comes next? I mean, do we need to revive a, a, a broader selfies initiative or what, what, what do we need to do next to try to ad address the risks out of these uh, entanglements with China and uh, the, the financial failures of these small countries? I think um, uh, we need to we need to have a very clear distinction between the world that was before the COVID-19 pandemic and the world there is 
post the COVID-19 pandemic, two years later of this pandemic, because this pandemic uh, being a non-traditional security challenge in terms of a health crisis, which came once in a century, has had direct traditional security challenges that has that have been thrown in our faces. So I think it is very important for certain regions uh, by, by uh, United States, Japan, Australia, India, all these countries need to focus on major chunks of areas where we see that there is or more likely cases such as Sri Lanka to sort of have a mirror effect. So be it South Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, Latin America, Africa, Caribbean, Pacific Islands. These are pockets across the globe that all the countries that I mentioned, um, including US, Japan, India, we need to ensure that there is important engagement with these countries politically, economically, and they need to be engaged. They need to be assured that a situation will not come where they have no other option but to turn towards a towards any revisionist predatory nation which is ready to enter economically and never leave strategically. That's a powerful message. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Chancellor, thanks for that comment. Just quickly, um, we have um, uh, a comment or a question from Hirayama-san. But Hirayama-san, before we, you make a comment or a question, could you please give a quick introduction of who you are? Oh, yes, yes. My name is Hachi. I'm from uh, Japan originally, originally, but I live in Darwin in Australia. And mm -hmm. I think you might have heard that that's uh, 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 Darwin has mm -hmm. a severe problem with Sri Lanka because uh, local government leased the port of Darwin to a Chinese private company for 99 years. So it's mm -hmm. not when I see the situation in Sri Lanka, it's not somebody else's business. It's really, uh, I'm a little bit scared and worried because mm -hmm. I was in the government before the Chinese, uh, the local government leased the port to China. And after that, I really see lots of, lots of corruption in the government in local level and also federal level. And as you might have heard about, Australia is very clean in politics. So mm -hmm. I didn't see many corruption. Not, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not saying there is none, but actually it's quite clean. But, I, but when the Chinese companies or government is trying to intervene the political, uh, domestic politics, uh, there is a really uh, quite... Uh, impact to Australian politics and I think we should share the experience we had in Australia and also we have to uh, share the information and do something to uh, to how can I say uh, to stop the intervention to mm -hmm. other countries from especially from China that's and so mm -hmm. when I hear the uh, the suggestion, it's very strong. And thank you very much. <laughs> yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's a very brilliant input. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so Hiranasan, thank you for comment, and Dr. Tansoria, yep. thank you for comment. Anyone else for other questions or comments from our from our team or from our listeners? I think yeah, we we got a good we got a yeah we got a good session in. And maybe last a question for me, um, and that's it. Doesn't have to be a a full elaborate response, but I, I wanted to ask um, was that 
you know, is, is China's involvement concerns the rest of the Indo-Pacific region nations with their involvement in, in Sri Lanka's debt crisis? What, mm-hmm. What's your assessment of that? Mm-hmm. Um, so China, you know, in a way, China recognizes fully well that in order to boost its naval power projection capability in the maritime realm, it will have to gain greater access to ports, berthing facilities, which has been reflected in China's covert strategy of granting these huge loans to smaller island nations. So the pattern is almost unvaryingly the same. Hand out these loans. There are no conditions or transparency measures. While issuing the loan, as soon as the island nation reaches a point where it says it is unable to pay or repay the loan on time, China would come to offer and quote unquote wave off or relax loans conditions. And they will say, all right, fine, we just need a few berths in your particular naval facility. And that is how China enters that country strategically. And then that sort of reflects larger into its its maritime policy of the PLA Navy. And whether these water bodies are the Southeast Asian countries, uh, East Asia, Indian Ocean region, Southeast Asia, it's, it's pretty much the same. So there is a direct security mm. implication of um, the economic collapse of smaller island countries, uh, especially with, with China playing that role. All right. Thank you, Dr. Sansaria, and for your time in speaking with us today, your insight. And especially your stance on Sri Lanka's debt crisis is not just about Sri Lanka, but also the neighboring, um, the neighboring Asian nations. Um, that this should be this should be on the radar, or this should be in the the, the thoughts of, um, like even especially for people in Japan. Um, but before we wrap up, do you have any announcements or anything you'd like to share to our listeners? Is that for me? Yes, for you. <laughs> All right. So uh, my my announcement for the listeners of Japan Forward is that please follow Japan Forward. Please follow our writings, uh, all the social media handles. Um, we are on uh, Twitter and many other uh, handles. Uh, so follow us there. Um, we have sort of a great range of uh, subjects that uh, we are all contributing towards. Um, Naito-san, Komori-san, uh, Galileo-san, they are the bedrock of this team. So continue to supp- support Japan Forward, continue to read what we write and uh, critical comments, uh, constructive feedback is something we always welcome. So more power to Japan Forward. Well, thank you for your nice comments. That's very, <laughs> that's very nice of you. I was going to say the same thing. Please read Dr. Chancellor's articles on Japan Forward. Um, she's a long-time contributor. She's been with us since we started, like five years ago. Um, and a lot of the stuff that she publishes, there's lots of research that goes behind it. Um, it I think the biggest hit that you've had was your prediction of the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, that went becoming, viral. Like, you know, a chemical pet that was <laughs> born from China. True, true. Uh, and, and, and yeah, that had so much impact on in the world we live in today. So yeah. That's just an example of what Dr. Chen Sawyer writes, and you'll see a lot of um, yeah, a lot of the things she, she writes is full yeah, of. Yeah, I, I want to add uh, just a little bit to that. It's not just she doesn't just write about politics and economy. She also writes about history. So she's yes. also written about the history of uh, historical figures in, in the relationship between Japan and India, or Japan and Tibet, uh, and other uh, regions in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, that, you know, go back 100 or 150 years, sometimes more, uh, and enlightens us uh, in that sense, not just in terms of uh, the current events. And I honestly don't know how you manage to keep 
your fingers in that broad batch of uh, major issues that you follow and also keep the history on the tip of your tongue. But it's it's absolutely amazing. Uh, I, I love your articles. I, I love the breadth and the diversity of them. And I think readers who pick it up and take a look are going to find the same. Thank you, Susan. I, I think that that's very, very kind and very, very generous of you. Um, I just, uh, you know it. Uh, it's just such a pleasure and, and, and a great, great uh, honor to work with uh, everybody, especially you. And uh, we soon need to meet in uh, for celebrating five years. And uh, uh, that treat is on Naito-san. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Yes. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, meeting you here yes. in Tokyo. Yeah. Yes, let's do that very soon. So, yes. thank you so much. Okay, so listeners, thank you for joining us today. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel, and these Twitter spaces will be distributed on Spotify and Apple Music. Make sure you subscribe to that as well. We will do this again next week. Keep an eye out on our Twitter for the announcement. If you have any questions or comments, drop drop us a message on Twitter and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Visit our website for more information regarding our podcast and other news on Japan. Catch you next time.